Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio or if you're listening on Catch Up to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the human tragedy of Pakistan's floods, which have already killed more than 1,100 people. Further flood warnings have been issued and in excess of a million homes have been damaged. The UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, described it as a monsoon on steroids as he launched a campaign to raise US$160 million to provide help for those affected. We're going to hear from Asad Rayman, who was born in Pakistan. He's the co-founder of the Climate Justice Coalition and has spent years raising the issue of Pakistan's vulnerability to climate change. We'll also hear from Heidi Chow, the director of the charity Debt Justice. First, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper. We can report without fear or favour and hold the rich and the powerful to account because our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. There's no corporate interest or millionaire backer telling us what to say. So please subscribe if you can to the Byline Times. You'll find more details on our website at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, well, thank you. Let's speak first to Asad Raymond then about the awful human tragedy in Pakistan. Asad, welcome along. And uh, I mentioned at the start you've got heritage in Pakistan. You were actually born there yourself. So just, just give me a sense of how this feels for you. Well, honestly, I feel like a bit of a broken record. Uh, What we've been saying about these impacts on some of the most vulnerable countries for years is now playing out in front of our eyes. I mean, what we're seeing, of course, is, 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 is the climate crisis connected to interplaying with, you know, structural inequality, hunger, and of course, an unjust economic system. And it's leaving the poor really hanging by a thread. And Adrian, as you mentioned, you know, in your intro, the reality of just the scale of this crisis, 33 million people affected, nine and a half million homes, schools, hospitals, vital infrastructure lost. And of course, alongside of that is two million acres of food production in a country where 80% of the people already live in poverty. And uh, the World Food Programme says 70% of the population don't have access to proper nutrition. So there's an immediate crisis. And then there's the reality of, of what this crisis means for countries like Pakistan, where this vulnerability is increasing between 30 to 100 times because of the climate crisis. And let's not forget Just a few months ago, Pakistan was also suffering from one of the most extreme heat waves uh, and recorded temperatures of over 53 degrees centigrade. And this is unfortunately just the latest episode of the climate impacts on Pakistan, but of course on many other countries in the global south as well. Yeah. And I said, you say that you feel a bit like a, a broken record, but I would suggest that in terms of the mainstream media, the suggestion that Pakistan, that the whole South Asian region is prone to these kind of disasters, at least in part because of climate change, is not a story that will have been widely heard. So just fill in the gaps for people who perhaps are unaware of the particular issue of climate change, how that has impacted on this awful human tragedy, sadly the kind of thing that has happened over history. To what extent can we pinpoint climate change as a factor here? 
This is a climate disaster. I mean, there's no question about it. The, the UN climate scientists talked about the vulnerability of countries, talked about the vulnerability of Southeast Asia, of the Indian subcontinent, and we've seen that being played out over the last decade. And as I said, you know, the climate scientists have explicitly said these kind of extreme weather impacts are happening between 30 to 100 times more likely because of the climate crisis. And we've got to remember, all of this is happening at just at one degree warming globally, just over one degree. Look, Pakistan has some specific vulnerabilities, of course. You know, it's a country where it has about 7,000 glaciers, more than any other country in the world. And as temperatures increase, these glaciers begin to melt. And in fact, the latest climate science report says potentially two-thirds of these glaciers are likely to be lost. And so what you see is, of course, these supercharged monsoons. So again, this is what climate science has told us would be happening. We'd see extremes in weather as the temperature rose. We'd see hotter, but also more wetter. Um, and of course, these monsoons are taking place with more severity, happening much earlier and lasting much longer. And this combining together means that countries are literally overwhelmed. Uh, in the case of Pakistan now, by these huge floods. And of course, in the future, as these glaciers melt, this is the new reality for Pakistan. It will be susceptible to huge flooding. And then, unfortunately, there will be a point where the question will turn to, where will Pakistan get its fresh water from? Because these glaciers not only provide fresh water for Pakistan, but for the whole of the Indian subcontinent. And already climate scientists are saying, it's predicted that... It, in the future, something like 40% of the whole of the Indian subcontinent, so we're talking hundreds and hundreds of millions of people, won't have access to fresh water because of the climate crisis. Yeah, that stat you mentioned about the amount of glaciers that Pakistan has. I mean, you perhaps know, know this having grown up in the country or having been born there, but when I heard that on a news report yesterday, I was absolutely astonished to hear that. I suppose it just underlines the the ignorance in, in which many of us live about the world around us. Well, absolutely. And I think, you know, this is something many of us in the climate justice movement have, have long sort of campaigned around. And I, I think, unfortunately, some parts of climate narrative have talked about vulnerability as if they are only about the small islands in the South Pacific. We all know about those sea level rises, but they have ignored the reality that actually some of the most vulnerable places in the world are across South Asia, across the continent of Africa, and across Central and Southern America. And we're already seeing that. I mean, we, today we're talking about Pakistan. We could just as easily now be talking about the fact that across the whole of the Horn of Africa, so Ethiopia, Somalia, Kenya, there are 50 million people on the brink of starvation. It's been called a climate famine, and we're now seeing climate famines happening in, in one continent, and in another continent, of course, people have been absolutely overwhelmed by rain and these famines because rains have failed there. Four-year running, no rain at all. And in other parts of the world, we see a year's worth of rain falling in, in a single day. So these, unfortunately, are impacts which are now irreversible and they are the new reality. We have to deal with that. And there are a lot of things we can do to deal with this new reality. But also we have to bear in mind that the scientists have told us if we breach the one and a half degree, these things will all start to spiral out of control, become even worse than what we are witnessing. And, and so at the same time, we have to stop this crisis 
getting much, much worse. Yeah. <laughs> I said, I'll come back to you in a moment and talk about how we deal with the crisis, you know, what, what we need to do next. But I want to bring in Heidi, Heidi Chow from the charity Debt Justice. And Heidi, I mentioned that UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres talking about raising 160 million US dollars, about 138 million pounds sterling to deal with the immediate impact of this tragedy. But you're concerned that once the aid has gone, the debt that Pakistan has will remain. Yeah, the $160 million in aid is a complete drop in the ocean. Um, just today, the Pakistani government said that actually they're facing damages in the region of $10 billion. So actually, $160 million really isn't going to cut it. But more than that, you know, the country of Pakistan has been in a debt crisis, not just recent in recent years, but actually for many decades. And it's been in this cycle of debt and bailouts and conditions on those loans for many years. And so Pakistan's really not been able to recover cover from a lot of these external shocks that it's faced from the sort of 2008 global financial crisis and seeing oil prices go up to the 2014 commodity price spikes um, to the pandemic more recently and now the surge in the price of energy and food kick-started by the war in Ukraine, but also exacerbated by price speculation on commodities in financial markets. This set sort of external conditions has basically pushed Pakistan really to the edge of uh, an economic crisis. And so actually, if we don't look at the underlying debt crisis that's going on, if we don't uh, introduce solutions to deal with that, actually, Pakistan is going to really struggle to recover um, from this extreme climate event. So give me a sense of the scale of the debt, Heidi. To whom is the money owed? And what impact does repaying the interest on that debt or repaying that debt have on ordinary people in a daily sense in Pakistan? Currently, Pakistan owes around $61 billion um, in debt repayments due over the next six years. So that's between 2022 and 2028. Um, and for this year alone, it's due to pay $12.6 billion of debt repayments. So that's the scale of the money that's flowing out of the country. And because money's flowing out of the country, it means that it undermines the ability of the government to be able to invest in things like public services, and uh, which is so crucial, especially at a time of this crisis. And so that's why we're calling for debts to be suspended as an act of an immediate response, because actually in a time of humanitarian crisis where, you know, we've talked about how 33 million people have been affected, a third of the country is underwater, where cities and uh, homes, uh, towns, infrastructure, all of that has been decimated. And right now, the immediate concerns for the government need to be to tackle the hunger, the homelessness, the potential spread of waterborne diseases um, created by the flash flooding. Um, and so rather than seeing the money flow out of the country to pay back wealthy creditors in the global north, actually these resources need to be directed to human need um, at this crucial time. Yeah, I mean, who are the creditors? To whom is the money owed? It's a range of different creditors. So uh, private creditors, so that's hedge funds and uh, banks, 11% uh, is owed to these private creditors. And actually, these private creditors have actually been buying up what's called distressed bonds um, in recent months. So this is where the debt can be bought more cheaply on the financial markets because of the, the economic situation of the country. And so for these private creditors, if they're paid back in full, which is what they're demanding, they're actually set to make huge amounts of profits because they're essentially buying up the debt cheap and then hoping to get repaid in full. About 44% of it is owed to the IMF, World Bank and other multilateral institutions and about a third of it is owed to China. 
So it's a range of different lenders, but in, in particular, private creditors are the one who, ones who are hoping to make a, a real killing out of the debt that's owed to them. And I said, I'm conscious I'm speaking to you in Birmingham, which likes to consider itself Birmingham and the neighbouring black country as the home of the Industrial Revolution. Manchester likes to claim that crown as well. But, you know, while we smugly sit around debating which of us powered the Industrial Revolution, of course, it was that Industrial Revolution which turbocharged the introduction of fossil fuel production, fossil fuel into the atmosphere, and which has led directly to the crisis that we find ourselves in now. And yet, it seems that the worst impacts of climate change are visited not upon countries like ours, but upon countries like Pakistan. Absolutely. Pakistan's contribution to uh, global warming is about 1%, right? And uh, the overwhelming majority of responsibility still lies with the major rich industrial countries of the global north, including the UK. It's deeply ironic that the UK government is tweeting condolences to the people of Pakistan and at the same time, of course, announcing a massive expansion of fossil fuels, oil and gas in the North Sea. Look, climate scientists have told us quite clearly we need to halve global emissions by 2030. That means rich countries need to be close to or near to zero by 2030 to allow the rest of the world, those who have been the least responsible, to, to go to totally uh, decarbonise their economies by 2050. Not only are we not cutting our emissions, of course, we're heading towards a warming that is anything between 2.7 degrees higher than where we are now to three or more, which will have absolutely devastating consequences, will make many parts of the world absolutely inhospitable for life. But we're also seeing, of course, the UK government and others dragging their feet on their existing promises. So back in 2009, the rich countries, including the UK, the US, promised developing countries in the global south $100 billion in climate finance to deal with these impacts, both to help them cut emissions, but also to adapt. There are, of course, limits to adaptation. We now know that less than a third of that target has been met. We still have been unable to meet that 100 billion. And now the UN talks about the scale of these damages are running into the hundreds of billions. And in fact, one study says that if we don't deal with these climate impacts now and cut our emissions, we're talking losses that will run into the 160, 170 trillion globally. So it is absolutely imperative that we act both to cut the source of this problem Frankly, both the UK, the US and others, they're acting like arsonists, you know, they're burning down people's homes and then sending them a get well card. It's just not good enough. We have to live up to our obligation. But also what they need to be doing is critically on this issue about loss and damage. And, and Pakistan really is a story about that loss and damage, because as Heidi says, it's not just about what happens today in terms of humanitarian. What happens when you have got people, some of the people who are the poorest, and when they say we have lost everything, literally they have lost everything apart from the clothes that they are wearing. How does that country rebuild? Now, that country, Pakistan, like Pakistan, will find it impossible to rebuild. And this is what the UN has calls climate apartheid, where the rich have the wealth to be able to try and deal with the climate crisis and the poor are left to burn. And I'll give you an example of this. People remember back in 2021, the floods that took place in Germany. Those floods, and they were horrific, 190 people lost their lives. They affected two out of Germany's 16 states. The German government immediately announced 
30 billion euros to address the impact of that climate crisis and then to rebuild and, and, and support the communities that are affected. How does Pakistan do that when what little income it has, it's spending on these debt repayments rather than being able to invest in the disaster warning systems, the early warning systems, but also adapt its infrastructure to be able to deal with this kind of climate crisis. As I said, we have to remember that for much of Pakistan, their infrastructure is already lacking. They don't have the public services. They don't have the investments to be able to build the resilience of their of the communities in the face of these of these crises. So, the reality now is. Yes, we must immediately cancel that debt and cancel their unsustainable and frankly illegitimate debt to these private creditors and to the to the IMF. The IMF should be immediately releasing special drawing rights for countries like Pakistan, but also fundamentally rich countries should be stumping up the finance and technology. And I'll say, if they want to look for where the money is, well, you know, in the last three decades alone, the fossil fuel companies banked $2 trillion in profit. They're already talking about banking billions and billions more in this expansion of fossil fuels. That's where we should be going for the money and we should be solving the climate crisis and also at the same time solving, of course, this crisis of, of global inequality. There, it is possible, but it requires the political will of our government leaders. But we know that that's simply and unfortunately lacking because what we've got so used to as the global north is is literally saying that south can the global south can be sacrificed really in the pursuit of profit and i just wanted to add to that really just to say that as i've talked about the obligation of wealthy countries to stomp up the climate finance that they've promised not only as a sign of their responsibility but also it's about seeing a mass transfer of wealth that's been created by centuries of fossil fuel extraction in the global north so actually they not only need to achieve the target they've promised in 2009 which was 100 billion a year they actually need to get that up to a level that actually reflects the scale of the challenge that's needed so we need to see finance in the in the tune of trillions not billions. And actually, the climate finance that has been delivered so far has largely been in the form of loans and not grants. And so uh, just going back to Assad's analogy, it's like burning down someone's house and then offering them a loan to sort out the mess. Um, And actually, loans are not going to do, not least because of the debt crisis that I've just described that countries like Pakistan are in. So Pakistan are in a debt crisis, crisis, but there are also 54 other countries in the global south that are also in a debt crisis right now. And a lot of those countries are also climate vulnerable countries. They're also on the front lines um, of the climate emergency, being hit hardest and the fastest um, by the impacts of extreme climate events. Um, And so we can't really divorce this issue uh, around the underlying debt issues because the the debt is actually turbocharging the injustice around the climate issue. And so actually we need to see the most wealthy countries who through through their historic emissions have created the climate emergency. Um, We need to see urgent actions to to pull those funds together and to offer them not as loans, but as grants. Otherwise, we are just going to see this debt crisis come back wave after wave after wave to country with no end in sight. When, When you see news reports saying a third of the country is underwater, it's it's just very difficult to to comprehend that scale of devastation. And actually, I've been really affected by watching the images on the news of the last few days and seeing the actual scale of devastation. And it makes you realise that actually the climate crisis 
isn't something in the future. It's here and now and it's affecting people here and now. And I'm hoping this is what, you know, makes people sit up and take notice and demand action from the, from our governments. And in particular, the you know, the wealthy governments that we've already pinpointed, the ones who actually hold the obligation and the responsibility to ensure that action is taken on, on reducing carbon emissions, but also stomping up with the finance to help the global south to deal with these climate disasters that are coming thick and fast at every turn. I said talks, though, doesn't he, about a potential new licensing round for North Sea oil and gas. And there have been indications, though I think so far not confirmation, but indications that new licenses for oil exploration will be issued in the North Sea. And the justification for that appears to be that we don't want to be held hostage by Russian oil and so on. And yet uh, investment in home insulation, something as boring and simple as home insulation, which requires us to use less energy and therefore reduces our overall dependence on the fossil fuel industry from wherever that fossil fuel is generated. That's Somebody described that to me today as having fallen off a cliff since 2013. And the simple things that we can do to reduce our need for fossil fuels, it seems to me, are just not being done. You're absolutely right, Adrian. And and whilst we can look at these crises, and sometimes they can feel absolutely overwhelming because we have a global crisis and of course in climate and we have much of the global south still trying to recover from a covid pandemic where the global north turned its back on the global south and we see that with the vaccine apartheid we have a crisis of global inequality half the world still survives on less than the equivalent of five dollars fifty we know you know two billion people face hunger half the world doesn't have access to public services and the list could go on and on and on and of course now we're in a cost of living crisis where even in the global north people are questioning whether they're the ability of people to be able to either feed their families or heat their homes but what's remarkable is that the solutions to both the climate crisis inequality the the cost of living crisis are there and often they're exactly the same things but what it requires is of course a government with the political will that would be saying actually the way to guarantee cutting energy bills is exactly as you said retrofit every home make our homes energy efficient we have the worst housing stock in europe it would be investing in mass public transport powered by renewable energy it would be ramping up our renewable energy capacity and all of these things have sadly been neglected ignored and instead our government and our political party keep saying oh well the answer is more fossil fuels when at the same time, they also say, we believe in the climate science. Now, these two things ca- are not compatible. Either you believe in the climate science and you know we cannot expand any more fossil fuels. In fact, the International Energy Association has said no more expansion of fossil fuels if you want to keep temperatures below 1.5. We're now exploring new fossil fuels and investing over a hundred million dollars per day on new fossil fuel exploration enough to burn the planet three to five times over where is the common sense of that that's simply just not rational and of course what's happened is 
we've got fossil fuel interests who are banking on basically that our governments are not going to act on climate change and and are thinking short term how do they maximize their profits so whilst there are some people who of course now talk about we have to bring the energy companies into public ownership i think that's an absolute must we should also be bringing the energy extractive companies into public ownership and then having a just transition transitioning them down and ramping up energy we have to be in a world where we know we have a world of abundance we just have deep inequalities that have been baked into our system we can overcome those when we can guarantee people an ability to be able to live with dignity and still respect the planet but that really means a fundamental change where you have to say you know what are the most important things that our economy should be doing and they of course should be not geared towards profit they should be geared towards meeting the needs of people and if we do that then of course we have a much brighter and a safer future for all of us uh, somebody called Oh Hello Troll, who isn't a troll. We've spoken to them before on Byline Radio, once to join in this conversation. Hello, not troll. How are you doing? Yeah, hi, Adrian. Um, I think I just want to add a few points. Um, uh, first of all, I think I'm a bit disheartened that not a lot of people have joined this, um, you know, uh, this call and this 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 sort of transmission. But um, uh, the other thing I want to say is that uh, I've been sort of uh, looking around Twitter and a lot of people are just sort of not really taking this seriously and, you know, uh, making disparaging remarks about Pakistan, Pakistani government, etc. What they don't realize is that 30 million people that are affected by the floods, more than 1,000 people that have died, it's not their fault what the government does and what decisions they make on the international community on the international scale. It's it's very disheartening to see those type of comments coming in. It's um, it's it's kind of bizarre because we are all seeing the pictures and videos. I'm looking at a video right now of this that hotel that uh, collapsed um, along along the river bank in uh, in a region called Kalam. I've been to those areas. Like you, what, what people need to understand is that these regions are not very. Um, the soil is uh, uh, is not very stable. So this is this infrastructure that was built was built over decades, where there was stable soil. So if you if you ever have a look at the pictures of River Indus, you'll see uh, that uh, most of the time it's very muddy, and that mud is actually basically just traveling all the way from the north. Uh, because the soil around the mountains is kind of sandy and it's based on a lot of loose rocks and you'll see that there's a lot of landslides on in that region and it's it's going to take years to recover from this from from the infra infrastructure that that has basically just collapsed away by the torrents of of water that we're seeing and it's nothing that we've ever seen before. Like even the 2010 floods that were so horrific, they'd compare nothing to what we're, we're, what we're seeing right now. It's, 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 it's just bizarre. People need to take this seriously. It's not just Pakistan that is affected. You know, 30 million people affected in Pakistan. But um, Pakistan also exports food. And, and a lot of this farmland is being affected. And maybe some of it is going to be repurposed for food um, uh, food growth, etc. So um, Pakistan growing cotton and other, uh, you know, other materials for fabrics, etc. That's not going to happen. So we might see shortage of that. So there's a lot of economic in impact as well that's going to come from this, not to mention the human tragedy 
that is unfolding right in front of us. Uh, of us. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, all I would say is that, sadly, you know, there are some idiots out there and uh, we live in a society where people are free to post their idiocies on, on social media. But I think whatever reservations people have about the Pakistani government, and they may or may not be well-founded, these are human beings at a time of tragedy who deserve our support, our love, and our respect and our help. Um, Khaleesi, hello, Khaleesi. Welcome along. You're right. Hi, I'm good. Thanks. How are you? Thanks yeah. for this great space. It's, it's really interesting, um, especially some of the um, facts quoted by Heidi and Asad. Um, very, very interesting on the financial aspects. Um, and, I, and I agree with Heidi. I think there should be more of a push to suspend any debt payments for the time. But I wanted to come back on Assad's point about um, the realities of um, the on the ground in Pakistan in terms of the number of glaciers they have and how this, this was inevitable. But I also wanted to ask you, Assad, that do you not think that over the last 10 years, or however many years, and this isn't about party politics, but generally in Pakistan, there could have been some preventative measures taken in terms of building of dams, knowing um, the amount of glaciers they have and that this was a, a reality that was, you know, it was going to happen given where we're going with climate change at the moment. Mm. Well, that's an interesting thought, Khalid. I don't know if you've got a thought on that, Assad. There is a broader problem, right, which is about the what we would call maldevelopment in the global south, right, largely driven often by the imperatives of the global economy. And so what you don't see, of course, is governments, either with the resources or capacity, to do some of the things that we think should be done. So, again, just giving an analogy of Germany, right, Germany, as soon as the 2021 floods happened, put in a new warning system, installed new sirens to alert communities to flooding. But how does Pakistan do that when even its most basic infrastructure doesn't exist in large parts in places in Sindh, in Baluchistan, in other You know, if you've been there, you can see the reality of how, for much of Pakistan, the question of, in terms of even sustainable development, development as a whole, is just lacking. So, of course, there are issues with regards to governments, and that has a large part to do with, of course, if we took a historical perspective, we'd say, if you look at the last few decades, there have been countless leaders that have come up in the global south that have said, what we want to do is prioritise our own economies, our own citizens, we want to invest in public services, we want to think about in terms of how our own economies grow, all of these and unfortunately, as we've seen, whether it was Mossadegh in Iran or uh, uh, La in Congo, uh, Albenz in Guatemala, Allende in Chile, many of those government leaders have been violently overthrown. And so what we have are government leaders who largely accept their position within a global economy, which is we are there simply to produce commodities to export to the global north for the supply chains, rather than how do we develop our own economies to meet the needs of our own people and Fundamentally, that clearly needs to change. But as you rightly said, the question now is, you know, whatever our critiques of the Pakistan government, the real question has got to be, you know, what happens to the fact that up to a third or maybe even now half of the country is underwater? What happens next? Two million acres of food production have been lost. When the images of Pakistan fade from our screens, what happens to the question of hunger in Pakistan? What happens to the question of how do those communities begin to uh, even begin to like rebuild without the resources that are needed? And and sadly, our again looking just like the last few years, whilst appeals after appeals are made by countries in the global south, 
often those appeals are nowhere near met. And so, again, countries are left without the capacity or with the tools to be able to do the things that we know need to be done. And they will put their hands up and say, well, if you want us to be able to do those, the rich countries need to provide us the technology and they need to provide us the finance. And both of those key questions we've seen, as we saw with the COVID pandemic, rich countries simply just don't want to do. They're dragging their feet. They see the climate crisis as an opportunity to even profit from, and as Heidi pointed out, more debt-creating loans. And sadly, we've been here before. We saw that with Mozambique when it had its cyclone. The Mozambique government came here to the UK and had to beg for more debt-creating loans. And that's exactly what the answer we've been told for the Global South is. More debt-creating loans, and it's your responsibility and uh, the Global North is turning its back on the South. Listen, it's been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you, uh, Khaleesi. Really appreciate you joining in. Thanks also to Hello Troll for joining in. Not a troll. We know that by now. Thank you to Heidi, Heidi Chow, Director of the charity Debt Justice. Thanks also to Asad Raymond, co-founder of the Climate Justice Coalition. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and if you want to support these kind of discussions on Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast, please consider taking out a subscription to our wonderful monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. You get details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Thanks very much indeed for listening. We'll see you all again very soon. But for now, goodbye. Cheers now. Ta-da.